readings from Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 right through to the end of chapter 2. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that should be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We've been working through uh, the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of those, I guess the basis of the story is well known to lots of people. It basically looks at the, the idea of this man, and if, if I want to caricature the story, we've got the idea of this man who uh, runs away from God, gets swallowed by a fish, uh, and then goes and preaches in a city. That's the kind of story. And if we think about it, we think of uh, a man who runs away from God. That's the kind of core of it. Uh, and then this amazing, incredible event. And we've come to that point in the story where, uh, well, we read it, we have our, our Bibles now, and they have chapter breaks. And uh, the chapter break that we, we have in the Bible is uh, after verse 17 of chapter 1. Uh, we see there, from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And what you can see is in the previous chapter, uh, we have that uh, verse, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Uh, that when this story was first recorded, first written down, we wouldn't have had the chapter breaks. It would have just continuously flowed from verse 17 into verse 18. And in lots of ways, I do really think that that chapter break is in the wrong place, which is why we've read uh, verse 17 uh, as the beginning of our reading, running into verse 18. And, and the, the opening verses of this really emphasize what a tricky passage that we're dealing with this afternoon, because here we are, 21st century, intelligent uh, people. Uh, well, I hope we're intelligent people, uh, relatively intelligent. Uh, certainly uh, the kind of people who find that verse a real problem, don't we? So we want to deal with that this afternoon, we want to consider that. Uh, and the way I want to consider it is first by putting it into context, by putting, reminding ourselves of where we've come from. We've seen this man Jonah who's been called upon God by God. He's been asked to go uh, and to speak to people who in Jonah's assessment uh, were not worthy to hear the message of God, were not worthy to be forgiven by God. From his point of view, they were the kind of people who don't deserve the favor of God. 
Uh, and yet God comes to him and says, now I want you to go and I want you to speak against this great city of Nineveh. Nineveh was uh, probably one of the greatest cities of the known world at that time. And a major city, huge city. And Jonah, as a single isolated voice, was to go into that huge city and to speak against the wickedness of that city. And he knew what kind of a God he was representing. When he knew that as he went into that city, the chances are that this God is going to go and do the unforgivable in Jonah's eyes. He's going to go and forgive them. You know, the unforgivable thing for Jonah was that these uh, Ninevites would be forgiven. He couldn't come to terms with the idea that God would do that. And so his decision is to, and we, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, is to run in entirely the opposite direction. He runs to um, the, uh, the coast, finds the port of Joppa, and then finds a boat which is sailing to Tarshish near to Gibraltar. Uh, if you can picture the, the map of the Mediterranean in your minds, we have Jonah running west, as far away from uh, where he should be going as he could possibly go. In fact, in completely the opposite direction to where Nineveh was. If he was going to go to Nineveh, he'd go east. And he gets on a boat and just goes as far as he can away from God. With the idea, with the thought, the further I get away from God, the less likely, the further I get away from Nineveh, the less likely, the further I get away from the point where I'm called, the less likely I am to have to follow through and to end up in Nineveh and God going and forgiving these people. Then we see a series of extraordinary events. You would call it, perhaps, we might think of it in human terms, as coincidences. But when we see the way the book is framed and when we have the, the background of the story going on, what we see is remarkably God intervening. And he bring, he wields the powers of nature. He brings a storm, and the, the storm is so fierce on this ship, which is carrying goods to Tarshish, that the sailors actually tip the cargo into the sea to save their lives. It's that bad. Uh, we're not talking, we're talking obviously about seafaring Men, men who are used to traveling in the Mediterranean, it is so bad, extraordinarily bad, that they are willing to sacrifice their future livelihood, likely that they would have to pay for the cargo or find some sort of recompense. They end up tipping the cargo for the sake of surviving. And remarkably, in contrast to that crisis, Jonah is asleep. Why? Because God has brought him to a point of quiet sleep in the face of a crisis. Almost to, to, to shine, if you like, a spotlight on him. God is shining a spotlight on him. Because he is in absolute contrast to everything else that's going around. Now, and then he gets dragged up onto the deck of the ship. All of the sailors are appealing to their various gods. Uh, and Jonah is, you, you speak to your God. Who's your God? He says, well, I'm the God who created all things. The God who created the sea. I'm the God who, who actually holds the power of nature in his hands. And the sailors are terrified. 
Because they understand from what Jonah has said and said to them before that he's running away from that God who can wield this kind of power. What's the answer to that? Well, Jonah says, for you to live, I've got to die. He doesn't actually say that, but he pretty much says it. He says, for you to be saved, throw me into the sea. And the sailors are reluctant to do that, inevitably. Now, they, they, they have got in their minds now, we've got somebody who's a follower of this God, who's a proclaimer, a prophet for this God who created everything. Now he's telling us to throw him into the sea and to kill him. You know, what's this God going to do to us if we kill one of his prophets? And he says, no, throw me into the sea. You'll live if I die, is Jonah's answer to them. It kind of starts to spring into our thinking, or it, it might do. I want to encourage you to start to join up the dots as we read the Bible and say, well, what what does that spark in our thoughts? Where does that take us? Does that remind us that there is maybe the, the beginning of the establishment of some kind of a pattern here, something building up for somebody to live, somebody dies? Well, what happens is that these sailors, with great fear... They become worshippers of God and throw Jonah into the sea. And then there's calm. All of that for us is remarkable. How can, how can the sea become calm? You know, <laughs> um, I've used this illustration on lots of occasions, but it's the best one to me. If you've ever slipped in the bath as you're beginning to sit down, um, you don't have to admit it, but a few smiles around the room says that you know what I mean. The water sloshes up to the end of the bath and then it kind of sloshes back and it's backwards and forwards and, and you know, it's tipping over the, the edge of the bath at each end, isn't it? Until finally it calms down. We can't control the water in the bath, <laughs> never mind the waves of a mighty storm in the sea. And yet what we find here is it seems almost instantaneously a calm comes on the sea. Why? Because the sailors are are there to realize this truly is the God who created all things. The God who holds the power of nature in his hands. And then we get to this fantastically challenging verse for us today. Verse 17. The Lord provided a great fish. It's as though God is just racking up all of the ways in which he's intervening in the life of Jonah. Now the problem with this is, if we were the reader of this, in, in the first reader of this, we would be smiling now. <laughs> in fact, we'd probably be laughing. Because there is an incredible humor going on in here, in this little story. It's, God intervenes now, with, if you like, a little bit of Hebrew humor. We don't see it because we are 21st century uh, Western folk, or influenced by the West at least. You know the way humor works in different places, doesn't it? You know, if you ever watch some of those really trashy American uh, comedy shows, um, you can't Lucille Ball. Have you ever seen some of those old Lucille Ball comedy shows? And you look at it and you think, this isn't even close to being funny. And yet, um, 
pardon if there's any Americans here, but they find it really funny. I just don't get it. Let me read you a little bit of Russian humor. This is, um, I'll just warn you beforehand, this is a tumbleweed moment at the end of this joke. Okay. A boy played in the sandbox with no one to mind him when quietly a mixing truck pulled up behind him. He peeped not a peep, cried nary a cry, just his sandals stuck out when the concrete was dry. There's no one from Russia here, is there? <laughs> Quite obviously, because you, be, you would be roaring with laughter apparently if you were Russian. You would find that really amazingly funny. And we look at that and we think, that is just not funny at all. The idea of a mixing truck pulling up, dumping a load of concrete on this poor little lad, his sandals sticking up out of the concrete. Okay, you're beginning to get the joke now. Um, It's just not funny, is it? And yet here we see God is introducing for the... Have you ever thought? God could have saved Jonah in a multitude of different ways, couldn't he? If we're dealing with the God who orders all of creation, if we're talking about the God who can still a storm, if that's the God who we're talking about, and the Bible makes it clear from Jonah's perspective that's the case, if this is the God who is behind it, then he could have made Jonah float on the top of the sea. Uh, He could have put him in a bubble and allowed the bubble to float to land. Uh, He could have allowed him to bounce off the surface of the water, land on a cloud and float over to the seashore. Why did God allow him to drop down into the sea and to end up being swallowed by a great fish and then live? Because for the first reader, it would have been completely surprising. Why? Because the sea is such a powerful picture. The sea is always, always a place of chaos, a place of disruption, a place of disorder, a place which cannot be controlled, a place of separation, a place of fear. And to add to that, the ancients always had in mind the, the fear of the murky depths and those that lived inside of the murky depths. So they were always terrified of the idea of sea monsters and the great uh, leviathans of the sea and the, 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 the things that are too big to control. And yet what God says is, do you know what? I am going to turn it upside down and I'm going to use that And I'm going to save my prophet from exactly the thing which is the most terrifying. You see how God subverts completely the thinking of the day. The idea is that Jonah is going into a place of chaos and then a great fish comes along and everybody would think the worst thing that could possibly happen is about to happen. He gets swallowed by the fish and lives. 
And that's the purpose. That's the idea. God could have done it in any number of different ways, and yet he decided to do it in such a way that would take the breath away of the first readers. I think it's really important for us to understand that. Really important for us to understand what is it going on here. Why is it like this? Because God is saying, I am the God who brings safety in chaos. I am the God who brings security and hope in the worst of situations. I am the God who can bring life from death. I am that kind of God. I am the God who saves in chaos. You cannot get any worse than this for the ancients. You cannot get any worse than this for the first Hebrew readers. And that's precisely the point that Jonah is, Jonah is delivering to us. You throw me in the worst situation, and it's not like I survive. It's like God intervenes and uses the things that are the worst to bring safety and hope. What's happened to Jonah's life? He's been running away. He's been hiding. He's been running from God. And he ends up, in human terms, as he gets thrown off the deck of the ship, he ends up being delivered into death. He ends up swallowed up, doesn't he? He is literally swallowed up, first by the sea, then by this creature that swallows him up. And yet in that swallowing up, we find that God is a God of grace and mercy and deliverance. I will save you when you are swallowed up. In fact, I think one of the things that we most see here is that we cannot really come face to face with God. We, truly, we cannot truly, deeply, powerfully meet with God until we are swallowed up, until, until we have no more resource left. Look at the contrast. Who else has met God at this point? It's the sailors. They've met God. They've met God when they've, they've exhausted all of their hope. They've met God when they've thrown the cargo overboard, when they think they're about to die, and then they become worshippers of God. They become those who are praying and praising this God of creation. They've met with God when they are swallowed up by the situation that they find themselves in. We find exactly the same with Jonah, but with a difference. Jonah knows God. I mean, after all, come on, he's a prophet of God. He knows the stories of God. He knows, the, uh, he knows God speaking. He knows all of the things that uh, are to be delivered to the people. He knows the messages of God down through the years. He knows the history of Moses and the, and the, the early church and the early fathers uh, of the uh, Hebrew people. He knows God. 
but he's never really come face to face and met him deeply. He's not met him in a way yet that is going to turn him inside out and upside down and completely reshape his life. But he does here. This is where Jonah really deeply, life-changingly meets with God. He thinks he's met with God beforehand. He thinks he's met with God on the the points where he's been called to be a prophet. He thinks he's met with God on the occasions when he's been called to go and serve and, and he decides to do something else. And now he really, really for the first time meets with God. He says it in verse 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You see that? Jonah had to be completely stripped of any self-reliance. He had to be completely stripped of any ideas that were his for him to truly, deeply meet with God. I, I think that, you know, all of us, we can go through life And we can meet with God to a certain extent. But it's not until we are really stripped of all of those reliances that we have, when we have nothing else left, when there is nowhere to go, when, as Jonah puts it here, when I cry to you from the grave, when I cry to you, when the only thing left is death, because that's where he was. There is nothing else left. There is nothing that I can bring. There is no security that I have. There is no strength that I have. There is nothing left. That's where Jonah really meets with God. It's where he first really encounters him. In a way where he now knows, no matter what, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to now go, and we'll see it over these next few weeks. I'm now going to go. I'm going to speak in that city. Because I now understand you in a way that I didn't before. We are all in that situation of needing to meet with God deeply, life-changingly. And and it is not until we realize that we've got to come back, come to God with, with absolutely nothing, with no preconceived ideas, with no inner strength, with no inner righteousness, with nothing which makes us good and acceptable to God. When we come empty, helpless, and hopeless, we find that we actually do meet with God. See, the strange thing is, Jonah was so opposed, wasn't he, to go and taking this message of God to these people who didn't deserve it. And yet, up on the ship, they've really met with God. And the one who was seemingly, the one who was really connected to God, Jonah, is the one who never really deeply was. What a contrast. Now, we see Jonah now actually crying out, if you like, from the grave. He had to die for them to live. He had to die, effectively, for the sailors to live. 
But then in another way, he had to die to live himself. He had to get right the way down to the point of the grave for him to come to life in his relationship with God. He had to be stripped of everything to the point of death where he starts to live. And, and, and there we see that is just one of those stepping stones of the Bible. We see that idea again. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's what he's saying. I'm dead. I am dead. Now Paul, when he wrote that, was either dictating it to somebody, sat in a room, perhaps was writing it himself at that point. He was very much alive in human terms. But he knows that somewhere back there, he's had to die in Christ. He's got to have come to the point of being stripped of all of his strength, dropping down to a point of helplessness and hopelessness. And then he finds that he lives. I've been crucified, crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jonah's a tremendous picture of what it really means to truly, deeply, powerfully meet with God. He, 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 lit, he kind of dies. He enters that point of death and then he lives. Why? Because God grants him life. How? Well, verse 17 says... The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. He's kind of dead. Then he prayed, and then right at the end of chapter 2, we read that God then causes the fish, commands the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. In other words, from his death comes life. And in that time, he meets with God. And the question is this. Does that mean that God stands outside of our situation and demands that we get kind of belittled and reduced to the point where we can then meet with him? Well, actually... Jonah is one of the prophets that occurs most clearly by name in the words of Jesus. Let me see, let's see what it says in Matthew chapter 12. It says this, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. I don't know how many times people have come up with that idea. They've not said it like these Pharisees. But they've said something along the lines of, if God would do something miraculous, then I'd believe. You know, if he'd do something amazing, then I would believe. And really, that's just a human trait. I can understand it. We want to believe by what we see, and the Pharisees were the same. 
But Jesus answered and said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, as far as Jesus was concerned, was a great sign. He was a sign for something. What was he a sign for? Well, Jesus goes on to say, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why did God choose a fish? Why did he decide to keep Jonah dead in human terms? That's what the sailors thought. Dead for three days only to come back to life because he had in his plan, in his, in his sovereign will, over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, a point at which the significance of Jonah being buried in that fish for three days will become significant in Jesus. See the connection? Jonah gets buried for three days because he is a sign for someone else who gets buried for three days. Jesus. That's why. And what happens? Well, Jonah gets buried for three days and then when he comes back to life, he goes and he takes that message to the Ninevites. He goes and takes the message of of God to those people who don't deserve it. What happens with Jesus? He dies for three days and he comes back to life. And then that message is taken to more people than we can count who don't deserve it. Who don't deserve it. Who are just like those pagans who didn't deserve to hear of a merciful God that Jonah took the message to. So Jesus reflects again, or rather Jonah is a reflection, a poor substitute of what Jesus becomes, the one who comes back to life and takes this message. And this message continues to spread to countless people who don't deserve it. In other words, we we see the fulfillment of, of Jonah in Jesus. It was just a planning, a stepping stone. You know, if you see a really skilled worker or skilled craftsman going about a particular task, sometimes you see that they do something early on in the process. And you wonder, why did they do that? That seemed such an insignificant step to take at that point in time. And then further on, as the project Develops, you see that they use that little step way down the line. And it suddenly becomes so significant, it makes or breaks the project. Imagine a God who can order the whole of human history in exactly the same way. A God who can do something hundreds of years before as a little tentative step in the process that says, I'm going to do that because in another few hundred years, my son is going to come and he's going to die and he's going to be buried for three days and then he's going to live and his word is going to be taken everywhere. And what a sign that is. 
But there's something else, isn't there? We say, does God stand outside of it? Does God just sort of, you know, demand that we all get stripped so that we just end up with nothing and he can look big above us and outside of us? Who got swallowed up way more than Jonah ever got swallowed up? Who got swallowed up by the grave? Jesus. Swallowed up. Jonah got swallowed up. He got swallowed up by a fish. And you know, in 21st century, you say, can you really believe that? I can believe it really easily if Jesus died and then came back to life. If I can believe that, which is in, in kind of, the difference is so huge, isn't it? Somebody dying and coming back to life is huge, massive, compared to the idea of somebody surviving in this way. If God can intervene in that kind of situation, then I can believe the first. So in actual fact, the life of Jesus becomes a vindication for the possibility of this extraordinary story. Because that's how it's tied in. I look at this and I say, Jesus got swallowed up by death. But then triumphed. Then won. That's the amazing thing. Jonah gets spat out onto a beach. And he stank of the sea. And regurgitated gunk and whatever it was. He was probably bleached. But he, he lives. And Jesus doesn't get spat out of a tomb. He stands up and walks out of the tomb. He triumphantly steps outside of what appeared to swallow him up. And you know, that makes sense then of what Paul says to the, to the Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He lives in me because he lived beyond the grave. He died and he rose. And so Jonah becomes the one who is able to, to, to make sense of the words to the Corinthians. What's the biggest thing that can possibly swallow us up? What's the most fearful, terrible thing that can get us? Death. That's what we're talking about. Jonah gets swallowed up in death. Jesus gets swallowed up in death. And yet he says, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the one fearful, terrible monster to swallow us up is defeated. It makes sense of it. It makes sense of this story. It gives a purpose to this story. And it allows us at this point, before we start looking at, at the 
the hope that comes through in this prayer that Jonah prays while he's stripped of anything, which we're going to be looking at next week. It gives us hope to say this. When we are stripped of absolutely everything, when we are swallowed up by things that we cannot defeat, Jesus has gained the victory. Jesus has triumphed. And so our hope is outside of us. Our hope has been swallowed. Our our fear has been swallowed up. Our enemy has been swallowed up. And we triumph in Christ. I think that, you know, in human terms, this is a really challenging story. But I just want to encourage you to think about it by turning it around and saying, you know what? The biggest thing that the Bible claims is that Jesus came back to life. If that happened, then it makes these kind of things possible. Because we are talking about a God who can miraculously intervene in the normal order of the events of life, which is precisely what we see. We're going to be looking next week at how Jonah pleads and opens up his heart to God when he's got nothing. 